Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. My name is Ryan Miner. You are listening to A Minor Detail. You can find me on the web at aminordetail.com. Tonight, I have the privilege of having West Virginia Republican congressional candidate Mark Savitt from over in West Virginia's 2nd Congressional District. So we are a Maryland-based show. However, we we're taking a trip over to the wild and wonderful West Virginia. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on tonight. Well, thanks, uh, Ron, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, we, um, we're, we're interested in West Virginia politics, and this is actually a first for us because we typically only cover um, Maryland stories that are related to and sometimes national stories, but mostly our radio show is intrinsically tied to Maryland politics. But your race has been an interest to me, and um, you, are, um, you, you are an outsider running against a consummate insider, and I wanted to give this – I wanted to give you an opportunity to come on tonight to talk about yourself, to talk about your family, to talk about uh, some policy and the, the the congressional race and how it stands um, as we speak. And your Republican primary is coming up on May the 10th. Is that correct? May 10th, correct. And actually, early voting starts on the 27th through the 7th. Okay. Yeah. Well, over here in Maryland, our early voted our early voting began last Thursday, and it's going very well. It's one of the highest early voting turnouts that's ever been in the state of Maryland. Um, so that seems to be a another successful avenue for voters. So I want to start, Mark, just by introducing you, um, your background, your career, where you've grown up, and a little bit about yourself. So I'm going to go ahead and just say, tell me who you are, and tell me who is Mark Savitt, and uh, a little bit about you and your family. Well, thank you, Ryan. Well, first of all, I'm most proud of being a small business owner in West Virginia for the past 30 years. Actually, it's almost 31 years. I own a mortgage company in Martinsburg. And I've also been the president of two national small business trade associations in Washington, D.C. These are not lobbying firms. These are comprised of just small business folks like myself, and um, it's all volunteer. There's no pay for that. We're not lobbyists. We are actual small business owners that meet with federal agencies, testify before Congress, uh, meet with uh, all the, uh, the, uh, the different folks up there that have uh, some type of, a, of an interest in our industries. And we meet with them trying to get them to slow down on some of the rules and regulations that they come up with. And the ones they do come out with, we want to make sure that they're following proper procedures. And if there's any uh, potential unintended uh, consequences, we want to make sure they understand this prior to those rules or regulations going into effect. Because as you know, when they put rules and regulations into effect, in many cases they have the same effect as law, even though the individuals that are writing these regulations and implementing them, in many cases, have no background in the industries that they're regulating and writing these rules for. Um, besides that, I have testified personally. I've testified before Congress over a dozen times, and I've been doing this for 16 years. I meet with all the federal agencies, the Federal Reserve Board, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, HUD, the Office uh, of Economic Counsel with inside the White House, uh, Federal Housing Finance Agency, you know, the list goes on and on. 
Uh, I am uh, married. Uh, I have uh, four grown children. I almost said five. I don't know why I said that. Let's not start any rumors there. Uh, <laughs> I have f- four grown children. I have five grandchildren, including um, my grandchildren out west. Uh, my son was in the service out there, and he's stayed out there. He's married. He has three children. We call them the uh, the three presidents, Madison, Jackson, and Reagan. And uh, then I have another son down in uh, Florida, and he is married. And he has two children. Uh, I also have two daughters. Uh, one is a school teacher, and one works uh, for a, uh, a company uh, in Virginia. So you asked where my uh, where I grew up. I grew up in New Jersey. I've been down here for just about 31 years. When I came down here, I started the business down here, and I, of course, was looking for a uh, an opportunity where my business could grow. Uh, that didn't have a lot of competition, and we got it on the ground floor down here, and we've been very, very successful. We are the oldest mortgage company in West Virginia. So other than that, that's my background. Uh, one other thing, I've also uh, volunteered for about uh, 12 years as an emergency medical technician uh, with a volunteer fire department. Other than that, I'm just a, an average guy. An average guy who... Is the owner of the Mortgage Center, as you as I mentioned, one of West Virginia's oldest mortgage companies. And, you know, Mark, uh, part of one of the qualifying factors that I look at determining whether a candidate is a good candidate or a bad candidate is have they been away from Washington far enough and long enough? And are, are they someone, is the person someone who can go to Washington, who has experience from the business sector? from the outside world that is not beholden to the Washington culture the entire life. And it looks like you fit that just job description, and, and I hope I'm right in that respect. Well, you are. Uh, when I go to Washington, as I said, I don't get paid for that. I'm not a lobbyist, and I actually fight with those people. I mean, times that I've testified before Congress, I've gone up some uh, against some of the biggest names in Washington, Chuck Schumer, um, uh, Chris Dodd, Barney Frank, Dodd-Frank Act. Uh, Maxine Waters, and the list just goes on and on. Uh, I meet with them, or in some cases try, sometimes they don't let you in, uh, because they don't want to hear your side. But we uh, we testify before Congress, and we get our message out that way. And, and, I mean, there's other ways. I mean, even with the Federal Reserve Board, the Federal Reserve Board back in 2011 decided that they were going to uh, in a free market society, that they were going to limit the compensation of certain small businesses, one of which was mine, and uh, which affected approximately 200,000 people. Some of the biggest uh, trade associations in the country didn't want to touch it. Our trade association, which at the time had about 10,000 people in it, we sued the Federal Reserve Board. We brought them into court. Uh, we didn't prevail because there was a, uh, a settlement a settlement on that. Uh, and there was uh, some uh, compromise. We didn't get everything we wanted, but we got some of the things that we wanted. But at least we didn't let them just steamroll us. And that's unfortunately what a lot of uh, businesses and a lot of folks do today. The federal government comes in with an onslaught of rules and regulations, and sometimes they fight them, sometimes they don't. You look at what's happened uh, since the Obama administration has uh, been in office since 2009, they uh, have come out with Obamacare. They have come out with the Dodd-Frank Act. And those two uh, bills, his signature legislation, those two laws right there, have been some of the biggest job killers in this country. Sure, of course. 
Um, so now you had an interesting career, but you, this is not your first congressional run. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, I've lived in Virginia and West Virginia, and when I lived in Virginia, I lived about a mile from the West Virginia border. And 30 years ago or more when I came down here, we were looking at houses on both sides of the border. And uh, if anybody knows this area, it's all one community. So uh, I spent my entire, uh, the last 30 years in West Virginia, but for for, uh, several years I put my head down on the pillow just inside the Virginia line. Uh, Back uh, a couple of years ago, uh, some of my friends uh, there asked me if I wanted to run for Congress, and I was hesitant, but I decided to do it. I said, you know, I didn't know if I was going to win or not. Doubted it, actually. But I thought it would be a good learning experience and might be some fun, too. So I ran for office uh, just over the line in Virginia in the 10th Congressional District. And after about three days in, <coughs> excuse me, after about three days into the race, I knew it was a lost cause. So I decided I'm not going to fundraise. I'm going to participate. I'm going to enjoy myself. I've always been kind of a history buff and, um, you know, a lot of fun. And I went in there, and um, we, did, we did fairly well. We didn't win, obviously. Uh, we came in at the bottom of the pack. But we did fairly well as far as debates are concerned. The press gave me two out of the three debates. And unlike the uh, opponents that I had in the race, they uh, they were all stressed out because they all thought they were going to win. I knew I wasn't going to win. And the woman who eventually won, Barbara Comstock, who's a, a fine person, uh, you know, they... Uh, they thought they were going to beat her, and I and I I was the realist in this thing, but um, I did it because um, um, again, you know, it, it, I thought it would be interesting to do. But the reason why I didn't prevail was because I had no base in Virginia. I didn't really spend any time in Virginia. My, you know, getting up in the morning, crossing that one mile into the border, spending all my time in West Virginia. We've owned uh, the business here for over thirty years. We've owned property here for. 26 or 27 years, uh, we paid a lot of property tax. Uh, we've also owned a personal home here for five years. So right. unlike somebody else that we know, my opponent, we didn't come over here to run for office. You know, this right. has been, West Virginia has been our home, and we've had other personal residents here too. This has been our home for, for the past 31 years. Let's talk about the 500-pound elephant, the Republican elephant that is, in right. the room. And that is your opponent. And the the reason why I am interested in your congressional race, there's a few different reasons. Number one is because Western Maryland borders West Virginia's second congressional district. So, you know, you go up to Hagerstown and you, you go right across the bridge, and you would represent all the way out in Berkeley County to the, um, the Potomac River. Um, you know, that borders right up into Washington County and it, and extends all the way up to, you know, Hancock, uh, Berkeley Springs, uh-huh. and Western Maryland and the Panhandle, and, you know, and, and, and to a large extent um, down in Kanawha County where you would represent. And, to, I mean, your your district is huge. I mean, it's, well, it's sort of comp- – It actually goes past Kanawha County. It goes to Putnam County. It is the largest, um, uh, I guess, mile by miles the largest uh, congressional district east of the Mississippi. Yeah. Um, interesting. I mean, that's that's certainly interesting. Um, we have, I mean, there's a huge swath of western Maryland that was redistricted into Montgomery County where I live. And, you know, that's that, that's been sort of a point of contention. And our governor, 
who's fantastic. Uh, he's a Republican for the first governor in, in you know, over eight years. We, um, yeah, since Ehrlich. Yeah, since, since uh, Bob Ehrlich. And um, we are, uh, you know, we're grateful because he's looking at redistricting. And that's going to be a big issue. And I don't know if any of your district was uh, gerrymandered or um, – I assume not, but um, – No, know it was. Had... Okay, okay. Yeah, because it was different. We used to include Morgantown too, so there was a little bit of a change there. Yeah. Um, my interest in the district is that I have interacted with Alex Mooney. I have uh, – I have seen your opponent in action and have had, um, I would say, some interesting experiences with him personally, one-on-one. And um, that's why, you know, I'm interested to see somebody like yourself take him on and take him on squarely in a way that is respectable but also calls out the fact that he is one of the countries in terms of congressional districts, one of the largest – one of the – the most indicative of the word carpetbagger. Uh, he moved from Maryland to West Virginia in 2013, the former head of the Maryland Republican Party, a former state senator in Frederick, Maryland, for uh, quite a few years, lost in 2010 to the former Frederick City mayor when, uh, when he ran for re-election for state senate. And the reason why he lost... Mark is because the people of Frederick fell out of love with Alex Mooney. They did not think that Mr. Mooney was a solid representative for their interests, and I have to agree with them. Um, he's stubbornly conservative, which is fine to be conservative, but there's not a whole lot of flexibility. But the problem is his behavior moving over into your district is indicative of the culture of Washington that we have all grown to despise, and we hate it. It's, it's such a problem. I mean you know, this guy picked up, moved his entire family over, went district shopping literally because when our district came open, Maryland's 6th Congressional District, um, Alex Mooney knew it would be very difficult for him to win in the 6th Congressional District. And so he packed up. He left uh, because at one point I believe he was working for Congressman Roscoe Bartlett, the former longtime – yeah, for the long, the former longtime congressman in Maryland, sixth congressional district. So, you know, here he is. He's showing up. He has nothing in common whatsoever with West Virginia, and even less in common with folks like yourself who've really had a real job for your entire life and had to make a living and and you know be outside and away from the Washington culture. And it seems like now is his own brother Pat Mooney. Um, <laughs> who is running for Congress in Florida's 6th Congressional District, um, is going to follow in his brother's carpet-bagging footsteps as well. Um, Wasn't he from Virginia? Oh, yeah. He was um, – you know, Pat Mooney is one of those professional campaign guys. He was a partner and managing director at Response America. It's a marketing firm. It does direct right. mailing and fundraising for Republican candidates. And they do work for the National Republican Senatorial Committee and the NRCC and the RNC and senators and congressmen. And look, these they're two brothers. They've had a long history of serving together. Uh, you know, brothers have served together in Congress before. And, you know, now his brother's down in Florida. So my question is – I have a few. I have several questions regarding this uh, sure. Alex Mooney. 
how much time do you think this guy is going to spend away because from, from WV2, considering that he's already developed the moniker as Congressman No-Show? You won't believe how many people have used that description to describe Alex Mooney currently serving the people of West Virginia, spends all of his time in Washington and you know doing whatever that he is that he does um you know representing the people of West Virginia's second congressional district apparently but having fundraisers fun fundraisers and and look we understand politics we understand that it takes money to win and you know that's just part of the job of raising money however when's the last time you've seen Alex Mooney hang out in the district um Actually, I've never seen him hang out in the district. The last time I saw, the only time I've seen Alex Mooney was the beginning of October at a uh, function with the Jefferson County Republican Committee. That's the only time I've ever seen him. And surprisingly enough, when I went up to him, I thought it would be the uh, the right thing to do, walk up and introduce myself. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, I put my hand out and I said, Alex, I'm Mark Savitt, and I had just declared. Alex turned around and said, welcome to town. And I looked at him and I said, are you of all people seriously calling me a carpetbagger? Which <laughs> I thought was a little response. funny. And, and then I went, well, he didn't say anything because I didn't give him an opportunity at first. Yeah. And then afterward, and I said, I, of course, brought up Maryland and everything and so forth with Maryland. Uh, he didn't know how to respond, but of course he never shook my hand either. So and that's uh, the last time I've seen him, and that was in, uh, I think, I think the first week of October. No one has seen him in the district. Now, he will do some occasional photo ops. He will call up companies or his staff will and say, we want to come over and tour your plant. Oh, sure. You know, you're going to, not going to turn down a congressman. So he goes in, he walks around, he puts the hard hat and the safety glasses on, and and he'll uh, uh, you know, take a few pictures, throw them up on Facebook, and it looks like he's doing something. But the important things, he doesn't show up. Like when they had their groundbreaking for Procter & Gamble in Martinsburg, where they're bringing in 700 jobs, 700-plus jobs, plus 1,000 construction workers are being put to work. They had the groundbreaking in September. Alex didn't show up for groundbreaking. He was invited, didn't show up. His excuse was the House was in session. He had to vote. Mm-hmm. The president came to Charleston about a month later for a drug summit in I think it was uh, very important that our congressman be there, even though he doesn't like the president. And I join him in that, but it's still the president, and it's still bringing national attention to a state epidemic, and he owed it to his constituents to be there. Alex didn't show up. Again, the wow. newspapers questioned it. He said the House was in session. He had to vote. But Alex has been out of the state a number of times when the House has been in session, and he's missed votes. One of one time was February 1st when he went off to uh, to Iowa to campaign for Ted Cruz. And he took uh, several of his office staff with him, some of the college Republicans, his own son. And I think he took his driver with him, too. Oh, the and, driver. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. he, well, of course, he needed that. And then yeah. he, uh, uh, you know, he went on a field trip to Iowa for three days, and he missed votes. So I guess it's okay to... Miss votes for political uh, purposes, your own agenda, but not for uh, your constituents to show support for new companies coming into your state. Well, Alex Mooney has so much uncommon with West Virginia. I mean, I remember when he first came over 
to the district. And this guy started wearing WVU hats. And I'm thinking, uh-huh. it, I mean, it almost makes you sick because it, that, that would be like someone who's never been up in Western Maryland and they go into Hagerstown and all of a sudden you see them sporting a Hagerstown Suns ball cap, right? Uh-huh. It, it, it's exactly just right. like, it, it makes you ill and it makes you think, this is not what our founders intended when they wrote this, um, this the, the most powerful created the most fundamental document known to mankind, which is the Constitution. And when they were crafting the stages of this country and you know, basically experimenting and seeing how all this works out in the very beginning, people like Alex Mooney were exactly who our founders were trying to avoid going to Congress. And um, that's my issue with him is that he's a professional politician. He's not someone with authentic real-life experiences. He's someone who has been part of the system so long, and he lost his state senate race is because people realize that this guy is nothing more than a politician. And some people in Maryland really liked him, and some Republicans were on his bandwagon. And they they but but my my interactions with him is that I have a low BS filter, and I just called him out on it and. I don't like him personally. He doesn't like me. I've been a detractor of his, and that's fine. But, you know, and another issue, you, you, you take a look at in, in 2014, and he, he became the nominee um, in, in the, the second congressional district in West Virginia. And, you know, I don't, I don't personally have an issue with super PACs, you know, as long as they're independent of the candidate, but... As you probably know, Mark, that his super PAC was not as independent as you might have thought. Um, you know, he there's the Freedom Frontier Action Fund, and uh, you know his brother was fun. You know, it's it's just so much shady stuff with this guy. Um, and I have a, a whole oppo file that I'm I'm going to try to get to, um, not in this conversation, but you know, with future releases, but. You know, here's the big question: What makes you a better? What makes you a better representative for the people of West Virginia's second congressional district? Well, first of all, I know these people very well. You know, when you when you're in the mortgage business and you meet with people, you see the good and bad. <coughs> Excuse me, I apologize. You see the good and bad. You look at their entire financial picture, so you know um, if they're doing well. You know if they're hurting. Mm-hmm. So you understand how, you know, the problems that people have. That's the first thing. Um, and, again, I, I've, been, I've been part of this community for 30 years. I know this community. You just can't come into a community and say you're going to represent them when you don't know the people. And the other thing is Alex doesn't get out. Alex has does not visit the district other than as those photo ops, as I mentioned. A lot of people are very upset with him all across the state. People don't actually know who he is. And that's pretty sad. At this time, he should be running pretty hard as a, uh, uh, a first-termer running for re-election. But I think he realizes that the people of West Virginia don't like him, and it's nothing personal. It's just that he was given an opportunity, and he blew the opportunity. He barely won the primary. There were 35, right. this is in 14, there were 35,000, approximately 35,000 votes. He got 12,000 votes, which means... 23,000 people didn't vote for him. There were seven people running, including himself, in that race. There's only two of us now. And 
every place I go, one of the first questions I asked, who is your congressman? Nobody knows. I don't offer his name, and when people say, who is it, I will tell them, and they go, oh, and they roll their eyes. I have been to uh, uh, all kinds of Republican events. He doesn't show up. He sends surrogates that do an absolutely horrible job for him, and um, his time is just about over. He's done. In the last two years, a year and a half, since Alex has been in Congress, what is his biggest accomplishment? I don't know if he's got one. I, let me let me go to the other side first. You know, in order to be an effective congressman, you have to go into your district first. You have to talk to your constituents. You know, I always say you have to put your jeans and your boots on, go out in there, go to the firehouses, go to the pancake breakfast, go to the spaghetti dinners, go to the senior centers, go to the schools, knock on doors, have town hall meetings. You want to be able to know the pulse of your district. You want to know the problems people are having. And that way you can take that information back to Washington and you can introduce legislation that will help the people of your district. That's your job. That's why you were hired. But Alex hasn't done that. On the other side, you have to be able to um, have the respect of your colleagues. I'm not saying give it on issues. Of course not. What I'm saying is you have to have the respect. Alex tried to sign on to a couple of bills, and one in particular was a Congressman Reed out of, I think it was New York, yeah. and it was a Medicare bill. Alex wanted to sign on to it, and Reed wouldn't let him on the bill as a co-sponsor, he said, because we vet everybody who goes on the bill. Alex, in my opinion, like a child, went to the Hill newspaper, and he complained about it and said he was being blacklisted, which he was not. It's just that, you know, in order for a bill to pass, and I've worked with a lot of legislation in Washington, in order for a bill to pass, to get other people on it, you want to make it bipartisan, which gives it the best possibility of, of passing. If you're going to the Democrats, and a lot of the Democrats see Alex's name on there, and there's absolutely no way they're going to sign on to a bill that has his name on it. So that's why a number of congressmen have left him off, will not let him sign on. That hurts his district. That hurts his constituents. So he doesn't get out into the community. He doesn't get out into the district. He uh, uh, remains in Washington or goes to other states uh, for political purposes. And he has no respect from his, uh, from his colleagues. And I'm talking about his own party. He has no respect. That is not the recipe for an effective congressman. That is a, the, a recipe for disaster for the district, and that's why Alex needs to go. I, I agree, and I think that someone like yourself, a conservative Republican, and someone who fundamentally understands the interests of West Virginia, is you know, prepared and slated to, to do the, the district's uh, – <laughs> To do better by the district, and and I think that uh, I think that we'll get into that a little bit tonight. Um, well, let, let me one, not to interrupt you. Let me mention one other thing. Why it's on my sure. mind. This past weekend, um, we had in Berkeley County a Republican dinner. Alex, of course, was supposed to be there, but didn't show. I got up the next morning. I drove five hours to Charleston for literally a, a two-minute speech. There was a uh, uh, at a retirement community. There was. Um, 160 residents there that wanted to hear from all the candidates, uh, local candidates and, of course, the federal candidates like Alex and myself. Alex did not show. He, Of course, he sent a surrogate. But the um, 
there were two of the five Democrats running in the race uh, were there. To sp- One of them blew in, very kind of arrogant, made his little speech, and he blew out the door, didn't hang around. The other one came up to me afterwards, and he seemed like a nice enough guy. And he said, you know, uh, we hope you lose. I said, well, thank you very much. He said, no, we want to run against Alex Mooney. And this is important because Alex, will, if, he, if he for some reason gets the nomination, he will lose the general election. I don't care how much money he has. He has uh, no respect uh, in this state, in his district. The Democrats are chomping at the bit, whoever their nominee is, to take Alex on. And I'll be honest with you, they'll easily win if he's the nominee. They don't want to run against me because I'm not Alex Mooney, and they right. know they will have a tough time. And this is going to be a Republican year. Even though Alex is a Republican, he would still lose it. They don't want to run against me because I have a track record, not only in the state for creating jobs and, 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 uh, and helping in other ways, but also I have the experience in Washington, which none of them do. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to get that point out. Well, let's talk about it takes money to fund a race and recently, Mark, you, the FEC reports came out, and it shows that right. you raised $11,900, and you have 2200 remaining. And, you know, I think that that is a – raising money is the toughest job in any congressional campaign. And um, I, we had talked prior to this conversation and that you were putting in your own money. But how are you going to compete with – Alex Mooney, who raised $150,000, as just reported. Well, Alex Mooney has, has the ability to raise all kinds of money, which actually it bothers me because of where that money comes from. Uh, a lot of it's outside the state. A lot of it, um, uh, well, in my opinion, what he's doing is he's actually selling the second congressional seat in West Virginia. That bothers not only me, it bothers a lot of people. I, I have the ability, the ability, and what I'm doing is, although we only raised $11,000, we didn't actively seek that money. We are self-funding. Whatever I need, I write a check for it. Now, others in some races will uh, dump maybe a couple hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars into the uh, uh, into the campaign. I have the ability to do that, but I choose not to do that because sometimes, it, with certain uh, deadlines, you could actually end up not being able to get your money out. It's stuck there. And I know a couple of candidates that that's happened to. So what I prefer to do is, if I need something, I write a check. And, you know, we're running a, a tremendous grassroots operation here. We have uh, people all over the state. I are all over the district. I am all over the district. And, you know, we, we've gone back to basics, you know, before these campaigns with all this money became so obscene. We are knocking on doors. We are going to events all over, and we are um, we are uh, identifying ourselves all over this district. And we have a lot of identif- uh, uh, name identification, and a lot of people have met me. I'm all over the place. We have done uh, some internal polling as well, and um, Alex is not doing well. And I don't care how much money he has. And he has to raise more money because he has to try to overcome a bad reputation. But no matter how much money he has, no matter how many mailings he does, no matter how many robocalls he does, people are done with Alex Mooney. It's not going to help him. 
He's throwing good money after bad, and he knows it. And that's why if you look at I assume you looked at his financials, he really hasn't done anything. And we're three weeks away from the election. Yeah, you are. And I want to talk about your credentials and some policy. You call yourself a conservative Republican, and I think that is largely reflective of the district that you seek to represent. Um, and here's where you stand. You want to repeal and replace Obamacare. You want to repeal and place, replace the Dodd-Frank Act. Thank God that has been one of the worst pieces of legislation enacted in this country in the last decade. Um, you want to limit rulemaking by federal agencies, and I say let's let's start by axing the Department of Education, the EPA, uh, and let's get rid of uh, the federal... Go ahead, Mark. Uh, I'm sorry. I was going to say I was adding HUD to that list and the CFPB as well. Yes. You are very supportive of our military and veterans. You support law enforcement, and you want to replace our existing tax code. You believe in a balanced budget. You are pro-life. You are pro-Second Amendment. You want to attack our drug epidemic, and I assume that means the heroin problem that has been wreaking havoc on our local communities all throughout not just West Virginia's 2nd Congressional District, but in Maryland and on our eastern shore and really all over the place. And it's been a travesty after you know tragedies here for young kids that are you know, trying heroin and other drugs for the very first time, and it's it's a problem, um, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, you believe in Citizens First, no amnesty for illegal aliens. Uh, you like to restructure unemployment compensation into a retaining program along with the standard of benefits, and this is where I am most supportive of your candidacy and that you wish to return education decisions back to the local level and get rid of Common Core. That's a big one. There's a lot of parents out there that are struggling to adapt to Common Core standards, and the more, that more, the more and more we learn about what is attached to Common Core, not just the standards, the park testing, uh, the problematic structure in which they're teaching children to analyze a problem, it's, it's become a distraction, and kids are being sort of shifted in the way they think about something, and Common Core has been a fundamental disaster at every level, and I'm glad to hear that you want to repeal it. Right. No, I have. First of all, I have a, a daughter who's a teacher, and you know I hear things from her all the time. And, and you know, again, going back to being in, in having your ear to the ground in your district is very important because you know sometimes when folks sit up in Washington, um, their staff kind of sugarcoats everything. You know, they don't want them to have the bad news, and they want to keep them nice and happy. Uh, but so I talked to her. But, you know, the, the laundry list that you just went through, these are just the tip of the iceberg of the problems that we have. Uh, you know, our country right now, we're $18 trillion plus in, in, in debt right now, the, the deficit. This is, this is absolutely stunning, and this is something that's going to end up uh, affecting our, our grandchildren and beyond that if we don't get this under control. You know, and I try to bring things down to a personal level, level so people better understand it. It's like you make so much money in your family. Uh, let's say you bring in $5,000 a month, but your expenses are $7,000 a month. Well, it's not going to take long before you're going to be in the hole. You're going to deplete 
uh, your savings, and you're going to end up owing more than you're bringing in. And this is what the problem is with the federal government. So what what's the best way to, to fix that? Create a budget for your household. You don't spend more than you bring in. And we need to do the same thing for the federal government. And it's important. We waste a lot of money. You know, you, we've all heard the tagline, waste, fraud, and abuse. Well, it's true. We waste money, not only in some of these government, government agencies that we talked about getting uh, uh, rid of, but you take some of the countries that we give foreign aid to. There's a lot of countries out there that don't like us and want to do us harm, yet we send them a check every year. <laughs> Why? If we don't send them money, they're still going to hate us, and they're still going to want to do us harm. Absolutely. We need to start, this is where Citizens First comes in, we need to start taking care of our own. You mentioned um, amnesty. I am opposed to amnesty. Now, Everyone thinks there's about 11 million illegal aliens in this country, and they're not undocumented workers. That's PC. They are illegal aliens. So it's, it's probably more, Ryan, it's probably closer to $20 million, uh, $20 million, 20 million illegal aliens. Can you take uh, everyone and bring them back? No, you can't. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, no please please finish your thought. I, I, I'd like to hear that. I was going to say, there's no way you're going to send 20 million people back. I mean, but what we have to do is when we find them, we have to put them on a bus or a plane or whatever it takes to send them back. You know, and this brings up another point with my opponent. When he was in Maryland, when he was a state senator in Maryland, back in 2003, Alex Mooney voted in favor of giving illegal aliens in-state college tuition. Yeah. The bill passed. Bob Ehrlich, as the governor noted that it was illegal, and he vetoed the bill, and he did right. He did the right thing. When Alex was the GOP chair in 2012, uh, it was brought up again, and he thought it should be a referendum. Let the voters vote on this. Well, my message to Alex is, you know, Alex, it's illegal. How about, you know, um, taking the position as a leader of your party at that time and just saying, no, we are opposed to this, because giving in-state college tuition to illegal aliens is amnesty. I don't care, you know, you, there's no way to get around that. It's amnesty. You know they're there. They said if they're in the, uh, uh, if I think the bill said if they were in, uh, they can prove they went through secondary education in Maryland, they could show three years. You know, I'm sorry. You know, if, if they're here illegally, they need to go back because they also take jobs away. We all have a problem, you know, your, you know, your state, our state, we have a problem with jobs. There's not enough jobs. Yeah. Well, that's um, because other people have those jobs. So here's the issue, and now I agree that we have to figure out that the more and more people are coming across our borders illegally, it poses more problems to our debt. It poses more problems with uh, working uh, certain conditions. And you know, back in Maryland in 2012, our governor uh, we approved. And, and the voters actually reapproved because it was it was submitted to a petition on the ballot. Um, we approved il- driver's license for people who were illegally in this country, and I think that that is <laughs> that is like that is completely wrong. And uh, m- but my, here's my concern, Mark. We you know like Donald Trump, he has said that he has come out forcefully against illegal immigration. Um, would you go as far as to say to stop all immigration or, or you know, as, or let me, let me say it in a better way. 
Donald Trump has also talked about the national security side of the immigration process and right. that he would consider stopping Muslims in whatever way that means to come into the country. What is your what is your response to that? How would how would you as a member of Congress approach that very delicate issue? Well, the problem that we have in this country is we don't do a very good job of vetting the people that come into this country on visas, whether it's a work visa, student visa, uh, or that emigrate to emigrate to this country. And a perfect example be, would be what happened in San Bernardino. Uh, the uh, yeah. the wife uh, was vetted twice, and she was cleared. And obviously, there were there were some uh, errors there. Again, you bring it down to you know we, we have to we have to know. Who's coming into this country? We, we, we know that the Syrian refugees, the president wants to bring them over here. We know that they are infiltrated with ISIS and probably some other terrorist organizations. And, you know, again, you bring it down to the local level. You know, if you're sitting at home, Ryan, and somebody rings your doorbell, you're going to look through that little hole in the door, the little peephole in the door. And if you see somebody you don't recognize, you're not going to open up your door and let them into your house. Why no. would it be any different with our country? You know, the, the, the Homeland Security said that, and this woman, again, going back to San Bernardino, they said that um, eventually they found out that she had certain posts on Facebook that pretty much gave her away, especially towards the end. And they asked the press asked Homeland Security why they did not look at her Facebook account, uh, you know, monitor Facebook accounts, not just hers. And they said, well, that would be an invasion of privacy. It's public. Facebook yeah. is public. They didn't do that. So we have to do a better job of vetting the people that come into this country. So, um, you know, I'm not putting words in Donald Trump's mouth. My interpretation of what he was saying was that we have to know who's coming in, and until we know who's coming in and a better way to vet these people, stop everything. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, that's certainly a very clarified position, and – let me ask you this question, and we'll get back to some policy, but um, people, I'm sure, ask you while you're out on the campaign trail and you're knocking doors and talking to your voters, uh, your primary is coming up, and right now there are three candidates who remain on the, on the presidential front, um, right. Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, and John Kasich. The candidates are – I'm sorry, do – do the other constituents, do, your, do the people who you want to represent, voters, whatnot, do they say, Mark, what do you, what do you come down on this presidential race? Well, um, I have – I came out and I decided that I think Donald Trump would be the best right now for okay. this country. And the reasons that I gave were this. You know, whether it's John Kasich – and I've met John Kasich. He's a very nice guy. I don't yeah. agree with everything that he says. I've never met Ted Cruz but I've seen some of the little antics that he's pulled during this campaign uh, when there was, I think, as many as 17 candidates in this thing. Uh, Ted Cruz, although he tries to claim that he is an outsider, he's really not an outsider. That whether it's Kasich or Cruz and the other folks that were also uh, eliminated from the competition, it's the same old, same old. It doesn't, it, if it's, it doesn't matter if they're a Democrat or Republican. It's the same old type of candidate that we send to Washington every four years hoping that things are going to get better, but they don't get better because we keep sending the same type of people to Washington. Now, Donald Trump, in my opinion, needs to, first of all, he needs to be a little bit more polished. 
you know, this is this is just the way he's always been. You know, I've I've seen him for years. Uh, you know, the way he acts, and he's a businessman. He's never been a politician. He's never been PC, and that's apparent. But Donald Trump is the type of person uh, that we need right now because we need somebody with extensive business experience to get us through some of these problems. We need common sense. We need somebody who's not afraid to speak his mind, and we need somebody who has a track record of hiring the best people to help him. He's not a hands-on guy. He's a delegator. And we need a manager. That's what we need as president. We need somebody who will stand up to the Putins of the world. We need somebody who will stand up to Congress and somebody who will attack that $18 trillion. We need somebody who's going to go after uh, other countries that have been walking all over us for years. And, And I think he's that kind of guy. Now, is he perfect? No, there's no perfect candidate, including myself. There's no perfect candidate, but we need somebody who's going to go in there and shake things up. And look, if it works, you know, everybody's going to claim that they had voted, just like when John Kennedy, who barely got in, he and Nixon, remember, well, you don't remember, oh, but yeah. back in 1960. Well, certainly so. Right. And, and what happened was after Kennedy uh, was assassinated, you know, everybody voted for Kennedy. Well, if that's the case, it wouldn't have been that close. Um I think Donald Trump is going to surprise a lot of people. I think he is going to do a pretty good job. I really do. Uh, I think he's going to get the nomination because he's got right now, uh, He's well, New York is tonight. The polls close in about 10 minutes. Well, I think he's going uh, to win that handily. I think he's going to blow it away. And I think oh, yeah. he's also going to win Pennsylvania big. Uh, West Virginia, he is... Uh, uh, the last time there was a poll done, he was at 40, and Cruz was at 20, and Marco Rubio was at, and he had 15. Uh, but he also had 55% of the independents. There's your key right there. Yeah. Would you support building a wall? Uh, I would, and I'll tell you how to get it done. You know, he hasn't been too uh, explicit on how he would do it, but what I would do if I was in his position is this, or any president. I would contact Mexico, and I would say, listen, you guys for years have been encouraging your citizens to come over here illegally. You have done nothing to help them, or or, I'm sorry, sorry, to help us. You have encouraged it. So here's what we're going to do. Effective immediately, the roughly 140-some-odd million dollars that we send you every year is cut off. Now, we'll review this again in six months if we see that your behavior has improved, that you're actually working with our Border Patrol, and our law enforcement to make sure that your citizens only come here legally, that we stop this. Plus, we have uh, the drugs coming across the border as well. Now, if it doesn't improve, we're not going to give you the money, but we're going to take that money and we're going to use that money to start building a wall. So, in effect, they will be building that wall. Well, I'm a libertarian Republican, and I... I, I have – there's a few issues that I care very deeply about, and I, I talk in depth about this amongst my libertarian friends. And as a strong proponent, I'm a strong proponent of, of our civil liberties and protecting our Bill of Rights, upholding our Second Amendment, and, and you know any candidate who runs, especially as a Republican and, um, and Democrats, I, I think even your Democratic friends on the – on that side of the aisle um, in West Virginia too are probably very staunchly pro – uh, pro-Second Amendment, and probably pro-life as well. Well, actually, 
they're not. Well, let's take pro-life first. Most of them uh, are pro-choice, at least the ones running in the uh, uh, the congressional race. Uh, there is a mixture of some of the Democrats, uh, a certain amount of them that are uh, pro-life, but most of them uh, are pro-choice. On the Second Amendment issue, uh, they uh, a lot. Of, there's a lot more of them that are uh, pro-Second Amendment than they would be uh, pro-life. They, um, you know, this state ha- has a long history of of um, uh, hunting and um, um, uh, protecting the the uh, their uh, their Second Amendment rights. We have sure. the West Virginia uh, Civil Defense League. Uh, we just pay, they just passed in the state legislature. Uh, we had open carry, but now they pass concealed carry where you don't need a permit. A lot of people have um, uh, been very upset over that, but you have to think about something. You know, the bad guys out there, they don't worry if they have a permit or not. You know, and maybe that they will think twice if more people are carrying guns out there that they may not want to commit a crime because they don't know who has a gun. Now, I happen to have a concealed permit, and I have it because mm-hmm. I want to be able to use it outside the state, except, of mm-hmm. course, in the state of Maryland, where if I accidentally stepped out one step over the border, I would probably find myself in jail if I had my gun on me. They don't care. There's no reciprocity there. But, you know, the Second Amendment uh, is our right. And, one, you know, I was interviewed by Breitbart one time, and they asked me, um, if I um, supported the Second Amendment, I said, "Of course I do." And they said, "Which part?" I said, "It's one long sentence." <laughs> you know, what part are you talking about? You know, well, we have the right. You know, it, one other thing, very quickly. I was uh, one of my town hall meetings. Somebody uh, made a statement that if there's a, a crime committed, you know, there's a problem at their house. By the time you call the police, you know, we're a rural state. It takes the police, in some cases you know, a considerable period of time to get there, as hard as they try. And I think law enforcement does a phenomenal job. But, you know, if they're on the other side of the county and have to come to your house, it's going to take a while. So he says, so what do you suggest? I said, I suggest that people learn to be able to protect themselves. They have to. You know, my my uh, uh, my children are all grown and, and gone. They have their own families. Many or half of them have their own families, and the other ones are starting on it. And... They, they know how to protect themselves. My wife knows how to protect herself. She she has a concealed permit. You know, this is unfortunately something that we have to do today. It's not only you're right, it's a necessity today because yeah. of the crime that we have. And a, a particularly, you know, tie that to the drugs. I think it's pretty so. clear. Shall not be infringed means that you cannot take away our inalienable right to secure our life, liberty, and property. The Second Amendment was was placed where it was in the lineup of the Bill of Rights for a clearly indiscernible, obvious reason. Um, and anybody who tries to argue otherwise, that our Second Amendment um, should be watered down, that would deeply concern me. Look, I'm a libertarian. We believe that, uh, you know, we want to protect... We want, we want, for, first of all, we want the ability for government to leave us the heck alone... Right. Uh, we want we want government to stay out of our lives and minimalize itself as much as possible. But um, you know, as what Rand Paul said, I don't want my marriage or my guns registered in Washington, and he's right. right. You know, right. I, you know, you look at marriage, and you know, as a libertarian, um, I'm under the, uh, I'm sort of in the camp of, you know, hey, why is Washington even, you know, the the whole uh, DOMA and the the federal amend, you know marriage amendment 
I, I think that would be silly. Why would we want a constitutional amendment to keep marriage between a man and a woman when that's fundamentally – that's a state issue? If a state says – if one state says uh, we don't want gay marriage and then you know, another state says well, we want gay marriage, well, that's a state's right. We're, we're a constitutional republic, and, and we're afforded that right, and we're a federalistic society. And my understanding is that you know, I'm sort of like, well, who cares because I don't believe the government, first and foremost, should be able to regulate personal relationship between two consenting adults. But um, you know, and, and I'm someone but they do. That, but they do all the time, and that's, that's a major issue. And look, we have about seven or eight minutes left, and I want to, I want to get to another big issue in, sure. in this campaign, and that is national security. We, uh, the biggest existential threat that this country faces currently, I believe, is ISIS. Um, they are seeking to destroy Americans, the American way of life. They have infiltrated several sects throughout the Middle East, and we have a major problem. Our president has been an absolute abject disaster on coming up with a strategy to defeat ISIS, and it's shown. We have seen multiple terrorist attacks. I mean we see an attack… Mark, it seems like almost every single week somewhere in the world where ISIS takes responsibility for maybe an attack. I mean, look at Belgium, for an example. That was, that was horrifying. Every attack, every subsequent attack is equally, indis- equally horrifying, equally outrageous. And you know what is the United States doing? I, I, I feel like that we do not have any sort of defined strategy. What would you do if you go to Congress in order to bolster uh, the, our national security process? Well, actually, I, I kind of disagree. I think we do have a strategy, where the president does at least. And the strategy is he wants the he thinks if we are nice to uh, some of the those terrorists in the Middle East or wherever they happen to be, they're in Europe too. If we're nice to them, they're going to leave us alone. And he's wrong. It just shows weakness. What we need to do: take ISIS first. We have an air campaign going on over there, which you don't hear about much anymore, do you? No. What we, what we need to do, and again, we need to go back in history. Let's go back to when uh, uh, George Bush, 41, was president. Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait. We had a defined mission, and the mission was that we were going to get him out of Kuwait. So what we did, or the president did, he built a coalition, I believe, of 90-some-odd countries that each sent troops over there, some, of course, more than others, and we sent more than anybody else. And we went in, we got Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, and then we left. And that's what we have to do. You cannot wipe out ISIS. You cannot defeat ISIS by bombing them. They're talking about sending B-52s over there now. That's well, not bombing. Exactly yeah, that's right. Silly. But that, that is silly. What we have to do is... You have to go into the homes. You have to go into the villages. You have to root them out. And I'm sorry if this is blunt, but you have to kill them. Because if you don't kill them, they're going to kill you. You can't put – where are you going to put these people? We had Guantanamo Bay uh, since uh, 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 9-11, since right after 9-11, or or the prison over there. We uh, rehabbed the prison over there. Now we've let all those uh, or most of those prisoners out. Uh, enemy combatants. They've gone, many of them have gone back into, uh, into battle against us. So the only way that you're going to be able to defeat ISIS, you have to cut the head off of the, of the monster. That's what you have to do. It's blunt, 
but there's no way around it. If you don't, they're going to be over. Look, they're over here already, and yeah. there are cells over here, and it's not where one cell is going to do something and then another. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people that know that uh, in the in the government and that um, zero hour is coming, and I'm not trying to be an alarmist here. I mean, it's 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 a fact. We have to be able to stop these people from coming into this country. We have to go to where they are. If we don't go over there and destroy them, they will come over here and destroy us. And once we get that done, then we need to leave. No more nation building and then come back over here. So when I'm in Congress, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I agree with that. And no more nation building. We, as much as we value our democratic process in the United States and as – and as blessed as we are having the rights in which that are given to us, not by government, but by God and our way of life, I think that it's an epic disaster to go into the Middle East and pretend as if we can parlay that into some sort of democracy, fake democracy almost, as an illusion within the Middle East. I think that you know, back in the Bush administration, back in the, in the early 2000s and up to 2008 – there is this idea and mindset that somehow they will embrace our American values. That is just absolutely false. That's not true. Right. I agree. Yeah. So, Mark, we have um, about three minutes left, and let's wrap this up quickly. Sure. What is the biggest issue facing West Virginia's second congressional district? I would say jobs is number one. A close second would be the drug ep epidemic. But, you know, jobs is important because, you know, jobs fixes a lot of problems. And very quickly, when I was down speaking to those folks in the retirement community, one of them asked me, well, you know, you or, or said to me, you know, you're talking about jobs. Well, jobs, we're retired. That doesn't affect us. It absolutely affects them because there are most of them, if not all of them, are on Social Security. Social Security is funded through payroll taxes. Yep. So it does affect yep. them. We need to get people back to work because this state is losing population at, at, at alarming levels. We need to get people back to work. We have to make, we have to build things here to bring people into the state. Remember the old movie, um, Field of Dreams, if you build yeah. it, they will come? Of course. That's exactly what we need to do. The drug epidemic, putting people in jail other than traffickers or dealers, put them in jail, throw away the key. But yeah. if they're users... Putting them in jail does not cure the problem. We have drug courts. These folks have to go through a rehab. And the, the, uh, so far, uh, with this process, they have had tremendous success. Very few of them have gone back into drugs. One of the things, of course, you have to do is change their environment, not let them go back or teach them not to go back right. into the same environment. War on drugs, we lost that a long time ago. It's about time we realized that. It's about time we changed it and started being logical about this. West Virginia is an example of the way it's supposed to be. Your website is Savit for Congress. That's S A V I T T for Congress dot com. You can check uh, Mark Savit out on his website. He has a very detailed uh, website about where he stands, gallery, and you can donate to his campaign. Mark, your primary is on May the tenth, and uh, I would I am happy to. Venture over to West Virginia. I'd love to knock on some doors for you. I think you would be a an exceptional member of Congress, and um, you know I think that uh, if you can take back the district from someone, not only the Democrats, but of course, I mean it has been taken back, but from Alex Mooney, get a real West Virginian in there. And right. uh, I, I I fully believe in your candidacy. I fully endorse your candidacy 
for whatever Thank it's you. worth. Um, and uh, I wish you all the best. So um, with that, I, I really want to thank you for your time, and I hope we can do this again before the election. Um, just tell me when you want to do it. I'm very happy to do it. Absolutely. Mark Savid, uh, th- thank you so much for coming on and uh, running in West Virginia's second congressional district as a conservative Republican. Mark, you have a wonderful evening. You too. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye.